when I went to the phone store, I said, would you have one that I can hear and that they can hear me? And the girl, of course, thought I was senile. <laughs> she doesn't know the, uh, the, the age of the technology you've been working with. Yeah, when she saw my phone, she realized. Yeah. If it actually comes with one of those little buttons that you push to do Morse code, then you know it's it's actually uh, <laughs> probably. Yeah, it's dated. It's dated. <laughs> well, um, I'm here with, uh, my name is Jason Rodenbeck, and um, I'm uh, here with Dr. Paul Axton. And I should, uh, I say here, but that's actually um, only because of the, the miracle of technology. Um, uh, I am actually in Georgia, and uh, Paul is in Missouri. And uh, But we're here uh, because we're both brothers of Christ, and we are excited about uh, an idea uh, that, uh, that uh, Paul and his wife Faith have kind of given birth to, and uh, that we're we're uh, getting off the ground, and it's a it's a neat um, new idea called forging plowshares. And um, Paul, um, uh, this was kind of your brainchild, and um, I know that there were some events that kind of led you to to have this idea and to sort of put it out there. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit? Tell me a little bit about. Um, where forging plowshares comes from, um, and uh, what what gave you the idea to do to do this? And we're also going to talk about um, forging plowshares itself. What we hope that it's going to be. Well, the, I mean, the, the most immediate reference is the you know Isaiah two four and then uh, the Micah passage. They're identical passages that talk about uh, you know that we'll turn our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. And the imagery is that of the kingdom, but of course the the question is, what kingdom? Is it a future, completely you know, unearthly kingdom? And I take that to be fulfilled then through the church that this is a peace that is in fact not one that we're waiting upon, but is initiated uh, through Christ. That uh, we have then uh, uh, the peaceable kingdom has been inaugurated. Uh, by Christ, and maybe that's the key here, is that uh, we don't you know, have the power to either initiate or, you know, make this peace whole cloth, uh, but given that there are these choices of two kingdoms, uh, and that's actually what the passages are describing, you know, what kingdom uh, do you follow, what God do you are you going to walk after? And the picture is that uh, the Jews then will uh, be those who follow God. And in the New Testament, then, I think that what the focus of the life of Christ, the Gospels, uh, is really the establishment of this kingdom, this eschatological kingdom that's prophesied in uh, Isaiah and Micah. And so given that possibility... I think that we then have an obligation uh, to, uh, you know, uh, live peaceably, to participate in the kingdom. What would you say, oh, yeah. um, as, you're, as you're talking, um, I, so much 
uh, I, I suppose that we should preface by saying that we, we have lots of conversations about these things. Um, uh, but as you're talking, I'm reminded of uh, a conversation I had about peace and peacemaking as opposed to, um, I think, what has become the popular, uh, well, I don't want to say popular, but the most prevalent uh, ideas about what Christianity is and how it, it interacts with culture. Um, <clears throat> And uh, I remember having a conversation with someone and, and trying to make this point about, uh, about doing peace, even though uh, peace isn't something that's done in the culture. You know, we're sort of in a place where um, we, we, under, we seem to understand that, that we're going to have to fight now, <laughs> that fighting right. and violence is kind of the most, um, is the way of life. Um, and I remember talking about uh, Jesus' calls to peace, peacemaking. And I also remember talking about uh, the swords to plowshares reference. And the person I was talking to said to me, um, well, that's for someday in the future. Right, that's right. for when Jesus comes back. Until then, uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, and we're just going to have to go right on killing each other. Uh, right, what, right. How do you respond to, to someone? I can tell you what I said, but I guarantee it won't be as good as what you say. So, Oh, oh you built me up here. Uh, <laughs> I, that, that, uh, clearly, what, what, there are two kinds of Christianity on the, particularly this issue, but I think the division on this issue then uh, characterizes two forms of Christianity that we might call a Constantinian sort of Christianity that presumes that God's primary work is still through the principles and powers, the kings, the governments of this world, uh, and that the kingdom of God then is really one that we're just waiting to arrive. Unfortunately, I think this is a complete misconstrual of Christianity and of the New Testament. My understanding is that, uh, you know, the kingdom is among you, that the, Jesus says, that the, he's inaugurating this kingdom on earth. And if that's the case, then, it is not simply the kingdoms of this world that sh shape us and form us, but rather they're, and, and I think that's the my original point, is that given that there is only uh, you know, the, the kingdoms of this world, well, it is true that violence is just seemingly an absolute necessity. But given an alternative process of formation that is what the church is about, the, you know, that's the whole notion of this new people, this new birth, is that it is an all, we have a different king, and we live in a, in a different kingdom. Now, it's true that this kingdom is, you know, still here. It's now and not yet, in, you know, James McClendon and others have said. Uh, so certainly the kingdom may not be here in its, you know, the eschatological fullness that it will be. But the point is that even in its fullness, the kingdom is one that, in Revelation is, you know, come to earth, that it's the new Jerusalem come to earth, and that, I believe, 
is inaugurated then by Christ. It's, uh, you know, even in the Gospels, uh, that the ethic that Jesus is giving us in places like the Sermon on the Mount uh, is a picture of Christian ethics, that we're actually to carry this out, we're actually to do this. I think there is a Christianity that would divide the New Testament and divide the epistles of Paul and uh, you know the other writers of the New Testament from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and what you get then is, well, yeah, there's that thing that Jesus did, but after all, uh, he was Jesus, and uh, that is not necessarily an ethic that's laid out for us. So I think that there are there's a profound division within uh, Christianity, uh, Christianities, maybe we can call it, one that presumes that the sword and the spear are still uh, the primary symbol of the means and method that even as Christians were to employ. But I think what's happening in uh, the New Testament is, no, actually, the, the plow, plowshare, which is aimed at cultivation, and this, the pruning hook, which is aimed at, aimed at harvest, that cultivating and harvesting new life is the business of the Christian and not the sword or the violence and uh, spear the war of the previous kingdom. Right. And so there's so much going on here, and I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that what's going to have to come out in this conversation eventually is some reference to discussion about what it is we really think Jesus came to do in the first place. Um, I think what is also probably going to have to come out on some level is what we mean when we say violence, um, that it's, um, it certainly does refer to uh, causing harm to other people physically, um, but it also is going to, I think, uh, entail um, a bigger type of violence, such as the kind of harm we do to one another uh, politically, socially, and and really, ultimately, also, so much of this is about our, our understanding of the way power works um, and that um, uh, that our culture, uh, our, well, I don't want to say our culture, really the history of, of people has always really been a history of the struggle for power and control of the world around them. Uh, and as you're speaking, um, you know, uh, we keep running into this word eschatological. Um, for those who might be listening who aren't as, um, who don't have some of the vernacular here, um, obviously we're talking about what we believe is the telos, the end uh, goal in mind that uh, Jesus was looking towards, um, and and uh, you know we. It's really, uh, there's been a lot of confusion about that and, uh, throughout the centuries about, uh, you know, what, what that looks like. But for my part, what I feel like, and, you know, correct me if you think that uh, there's anything uh, that uh, uh, you wouldn't say, um, but for my part, so much of 
of Christianity, the way I've tried to understand it, is that, yeah, we're told that there is this time in the future when things are going to be um, this sort of ideal situation. Um, but that doesn't let us off the hook uh, trying to live that out as if it already were here. And that what we do as a people, um, we live as a witness to what we believe will be um, in the in the resurrection, as it were. That yeah. Well, I, yeah I, go ahead. I, I think that maybe we could even so uh, the term violence uh, may be inadequate because we we often think of an outward violence. But so I, I don't have another word at the moment other than sin. But sin, of course, is is sort of running for us too because we get it's been so trivialized. Mm-hmm. So what we need to picture with these two words is a all uh, saturating, uh, co- you know, coherent uh, system that is inclusive of everything. In other words, violence and sin is not a phenomena that simply is out there somewhere, but it's descriptive of, you know, if you want to do, uh, my work has been in psychoanalysis, that, uh, and especially in connection with Romans 7, uh, that the death that Paul is describing is actually taken up by the soul, that it is not something that's simply foisted upon us from within or from without, but it is something that arises from within. And so we are saturated in this violence, in this sin, so that it's not simply constitutive of cultures and politics, and, uh, but it's constitute, it constitutes who we are as human subjects. So the agonistic struggle that Paul is describing uh is simply a reflection then of this, you know, uh, outward struggle, or you know, you can take it vice versa. I don't, I don't want to either focus on the interior as if it exists isolated from the exterior, or the exterior as if, in other words, uh, the phenomena, the system, the logic is all embracing and all encompassing. And so, what you need to paint the picture, particularly black before you understand the great need we have for a redeemer. In other words, there's no way of fixing this thing uh, apart from divine intervention. But once you once you get that that's precisely what has occurred, that uh, there there is an alternative kind of subjectivity because available to us because there is an alternative kingdom that is available to us. And again, you know, what comes first, the psychoanalytic or the interior or the... Well, I think that we are constituted as people because we are parts, part of a culture or part of a society. And, uh, you know, your picture there of power, I think, is... is
two forces that are at war, uh, that there is an absence of violence. Or, and so when we talk about peace in Christianity, it's not simply a negation of something, yeah. but it is a completely alternative uh, understanding, not an originary violence, but the understanding that, well, no, God is not subject to this violence, this struggle, this sin. You know, that's what it means when, when we say that God is not evil, that there is a positive peace that's provided to us, that's given to us in Christ. You know, there's... Uh... Yeah. There's a ton of uh, of reflection to be done on the fall of man narrative in Genesis three. Um, there's obviously that's a passage that is just very theologically loaded, and and you know aside from the the discussions, uh, uh, the, I think the rather poor discussions about how literally to understand the passage, but uh, there is a, a fairly um, there's a fairly thick, dense uh, theology that's happening in in Genesis three about uh, about the what I think uh, Bonhoeffer describes uh, as as the sense of trying to do ethics apart from God, that taking the knowledge of good and evil for myself, um, and then what then happens is a, a a lot of violence between the the, the uh, agonists of the story, uh, Adam and Eve, um, the protagonists, I should say, um, where now all of a sudden Adam and Eve uh, are uh, experiencing things they had not experienced before, such as uh, insecurity um, around one another. Um, there's uh, uh, finger pointing. And um, and ultimately a sense of trying to push God uh, away, um, and uh, whether I think traditionally we've well they felt really guilty. Well, perhaps, but perhaps what's really happening there is a sense that if I'm if I am going to be that source of knowledge, good and evil, then I'm going to have to take that by force, and. Um, and I think what's one of the things that's fascinating in this in that passage in Genesis three is now there's this uh, these these things that God says that we've traditionally read as these sort of you sin so now I'm punishing you um, now now there's death uh, and I think this is what Paul is thinking about when he looks back um, in Romans uh, and, and talks about death but there's also a brokenness with creation. That creation doesn't work right because now we're uh, we're more exploitive of creation than living in it symbiotically. Um, there's an exploitation about our relationships, where Adam says, "The Lord says to uh, Eve, well, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you." So now relationships are broken, and and I feel like when I'm reading that, what I'm seeing is that. That in that desire to 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 take that knowledge, good and evil for ourselves, you know, our lives are sort of founded on death and violence. That it it's sort of constitutive of our whole our whole uh, worldview. I mean, the way we do life is inherently a struggle for control. And if you don't mind me adding, um, I think that um, Nietzsche and Bonhoeffer are coming from very different. Um, 
um, <laughs> sets of assumptions about the world have basically the same critique about power and um, and and all that that but they they uh, one assumes Nietzsche assumes that that's the way things should be really our lives are about trying to get control of one another and it's going to be up to the Superman the strong man to make his own right and wrong and make his own uh, world and uh, the the weak and here he lumped Jesus in um, will will uh, will will have to uh, die off and con- consequently and I think um, I don't mean to take over here but I think that when um, when Nietzsche says you know God is dead um, he's exactly thinking that that it's up to us to kill God and to become gods. Well, Bonhoeffer, uh, sometime later, says, "Well, that is exactly what sin is, and um, and that's in in ethics." So, um, well, that's a, yeah. Go ahead. If, if you do a kind of genealogy, which Nietzsche would like that word, you know, uh, of his own notion of the death of God, of course, it arises with Luther's idea that God died on the cross. Which is a is a uh, Luther is reacting to a scholastic notion that uh, God can't die because uh, of uh, a kind of divine apathia, divine impossibility that God could experience either change or suffering, and so what dies in scholasticism is the body of Christ. Uh, and Luther's reacting against scholasticism and reacting against that understanding, which is perfectly legitimate. And then Hegel takes that up, and and Hegel, you know, maybe he's a good Lutheran, I don't know, but he, he also then takes the notion of the death of God. But, of course, for Luther, there is simply this negative force. So if you think, uh, you know, in today's terms in uh, people who are Nietzschean or Hegelian, think of Slavoj Zizek or Agamben or Badu, they are reading Paul and Paul's passage in Romans 7, 1 to 6, as all-encompassing. That is their, but what they're missing about it in their Hegelian understanding is they imagine that simply the negation of uh, you know, uh, one form of the subject of, uh, you know, uh, death is adequate. And so there's an emptying out. There is simply a, after Hegel, you really don't need, uh, God really has died. And so Nietzsche's proclamation, God is dead, Luther says it, Hegel says it, Nietzsche says it, but by the time Nietzsche says it, of course, what he means is, uh, that uh, is, is a full-blown atheism. But it is an atheism that arises from, I think, a deep insight into the, the predicament, the problem. What is fa- you know, the failure of uh, radical atheism today is not a failure of diagnosis, but a failure of cure. There is no positive resolution then to 
the the death of God. The death of God is the answer. Uh, but getting rid of a perverse deity or perverse understanding of God uh, is then, in this understanding, to rid ourselves of a form of uh, perverse violence. But what uh, what they fail to see, you know, is well, no, actually, there is a replacement, an alternative kingdom, an alternative logic. So will to power, you know, Nietzsche's will to power uh, is in in some way to recognize the problem, but not really, because the will to power is simply a return to pure death drive. I'm not sure that related to anything. <laughs> well, so many times you, you, uh, you talk and I find myself, um, I'm just... I I have to think really hard to keep up. Obviously, um, um, I, I'm I'm the intellectual. Oh, I'm glad you I'm glad you were impressed. <laughs> um, I think I think what we're I feel like what we're what we're nailing down here.